Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can get on our mailing list, find show notes, transcripts, as well as videos at narrativespodcast.com. Thanks. Alexi, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you. Excellent. Could you give me just a, a really brief bio, you know, and, and uh, the, what are the high level things you're interested in just for the audience, for people who haven't met you yet? Yeah, uh, I'm an independent researcher and I'm most interested in the structures of science and in the way uh, basic science works and the way academia works and in like figuring that out and then figuring out how how to improve on the existing processes and figuring out how to make uh, the workings of basic science and the workings of academia better. Excellent. Excellent. So my first question, um, you know, you wrote a piece I really enjoyed. Um, it's called how life sciences actually work. And this weekend I was, um, actually with one of my friends, we had a wedding. He was a groomsman. I was the officiant and he's a researcher at the NIH. And so we were actually, we were talking about some of the points. Um, and and one of the most interesting things to me, you, you know, you said there's this kind of, uh, this, this fake news idea, I think you called it, that R&D is kind of slowing down. Like, you know, maybe we're not getting as much out of uh, science, especially life science that we used to. Um, but when I look at like R&D for pharma, it's like been trending down. I think the last time I looked at this was like 2018 and it was fast approaching the cost of capital. So it was, it was evening out that, you know, pharma companies are getting less and less on their R&D money um, back, which is kind of a sign to me like, well, What's going on? And that's in pharma. So that's like a particular thing in the life sciences. So maybe that specific case is different. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, I don't think I can actually answer this question uh, about pharma. I'm not, I'm not very familiar with pharma, unfortunately. Gotcha. Uh, like this is uh, uh, like, basically the, the question is about the translational side of science. It where, is more on the translational uh, side, definitely. And like, and I'm like specifically focusing on stages prior to that. And my understanding is that in the stages prior prior to that, like in basic science, there is indeed much more progress than uh, there has ever been. For translational science, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not actually familiar with the paper. I think like I, I heard about findings like that. My guess would be that uh, like if it was like, if it was the case that the cost of capital for like companies that are engaged in translational research uh, was rising very rapidly, we wouldn't see like, the patterns in funding of biotech startups that we see. And like what we see is like just 
incredible incredible amounts of biotech funding like uh, we more more than ever before and it's my impression is that like more than ever before biotechnology startups uh, getting started and for big pharma companies specifically like i, I think it, it it might be the case that uh, like it's very individual to them or it's like individual to companies that are engaged in this like incremental research where they're like trying to continue uh, to create like new therapies but like incrementally uh, in areas where all of the low-hanging fruit has already been picked and if you try to do that and uh, taken into account also like increasing cost of regulation, which I think are real. Uh, and if we limit ourselves to these kinds of uh, developments, then it, it seems likely that like this is what happens. But uh, yeah, I, I would very much doubt that this that it's actually the case that like new therapies are becoming like less profitable or something gotcha. overall. Makes sense. Definitely. Um, you mentioned low hanging fruit there. Do you think in some sense it's gotten harder um, in basic research was the area, you know, you focused on to, you know, solve problems and, and find out new things. Do you think it's gotten harder? You think it's about the same? What's your thought on that? That's a very broad question, right? So it's like, yeah, uh, I think that, yeah, well, I mean, uh, again, I, I'm not sure I have like an easy answer here. There are several different perspectives from which I could approach this. First of all, I think it is, uh, it is the case that like science is becoming more expensive. Like in the past, you could just like sit around and think about things and discover things or like go out and like look at animals and like make discoveries or dissect animals and make discoveries or something. Or yeah, or or or, or, or microscopy was like, you, you were just like, just a dude who did optics or, or who did glasses or something and like decided to like, uh, stack a, a few lenses and then you get bam you get a microscope and you see things nobody has ever seen before uh, and today like you can't really do this like all, all of the like really obvious things where you just sit around or like and, and discover things have been discovered and now we do need like a lot of training and we do need expensive equipment and we do uh, often need more time to discover things uh, so on the one hand like science has like definitely become more expensive uh, on the other hand the picture of science that i have in my head is that it's sort of like a Like the, the discoveries sort of form like a graph and 
they uh, like one discovery leads to another discovery or to several discoveries. And sometimes like actually uh, there are several paths to the same discovery. Uh, and like we observe cells and like we, we like before like even seeing cells, we can't even like ask any, any questions really about how they work. But once uh, we observe them using this like really cheap equipment, we, we like get access to a lot of questions that we can ask about them. And then as my, my intuition is that, my understanding is that as we uh, know more and more the space of potential problems to attack, uh, becomes wider and wider. And in a sense, like finding ideas actually becomes easier. And I, and like in terms of like the impact or like return on ideas, this is also, uh, I think which is like a, a, a natural continuation of this question. Like maybe it's baked in into like the also return on capital, like return on unit of effort or something. And here, like the, the way I think about this is that like in the past you could just like start washing your hands and you would cut infant mortality from right. like, 40% to 20% immediately. Case. Yeah. Uh, and on the one hand, like this is true. And like you just like randomly discover an antibiotic also very cheaply just by uh, noticing that uh, like bacteria somewhere don't grow and like isolating uh, a compound that makes them not grow. Uh, but and on the one hand, we do get these like really big returns on what seems like simple, uh, simple discoveries. At the same time, it seems to me that like if we look at or if we think about some sort of like global understanding of how things work, uh, such discoveries do not really improve that understanding that much. They sort of have an impact without, I, I'm imagining that we have like this sort of on the scale from understanding how biology and like uh, how, how everything works on uh, on the scale from zero to 100, like washing hands like moves us like maybe a little bit because we realize that like something must be going on uh, while having a big impact at the same time. Uh, we might observe less impact solving something like, uh, I, I don't know, inventing a drug that like uh, completely solves very rare genetic disease. Like it, 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 the, the, the impact on like overall uh, life expectancy will be re really small. But at the same time, we might gain sort of like much better understanding for like biology really works by gets into that disease and like gets into finding out how exactly like genes break and how exactly like to to to, to deliver the therapy and how exactly to like affect this specific mechanism like uh, the specific like the dynamics that are going on uh, in, in the disease and if we view the progress of science as occurring or like uh, 
if we like think that the the important thing is to get to like a hundred, one hundred out of one hundred understanding, or to build, you know, build nan nanotech or molecular machines or something like. Uh, Washing hands and discovering antibiotics doesn't really help with any of that. Uh, but while doing these things that might not immediately seem like uh, very useful or profitable for biotech companies because they don't really affect health, do actually count and do actually contribute to us getting there. Uh, so, uh, yeah, my, my guess would be that it is like indeed the case that like these really impactful chip discoveries have been difficult to come by, but at the same time, it has been easier to like move along this like path to complete understanding. And as we move along, like we, we actually get more and more uh, like opportunities to ask more questions and to attack them better. And that we're moving uh, like along that line much quicker than we've been moving in the past, even though the we, we've been moving along the like uh, just in, increasing life expectancy slower. That makes sense. So maybe it's something where you know we're solving these more complex problems. You know, maybe it's a rare genetic disease, and we get more understanding out of that. But there's less like utility from going from just you know, okay, we're gonna start washing everybody's hands. You know, cut infant mortality this huge amount. Yeah, at, le at least intermediate utility. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, because like if we do solve a bunch of like these diseases, then at, at some point we like just we'll just like stop having like a class of diseases, and at some point we can imagine that we if we solve enough of these diseases, we're really just going to reach a point where people are just going to for. for leave like because diseases sort of like multiply as you age like if we solve a bunch of diseases that don't contribute that much i think that we're actually going to see increasing and increasing impact of that but it's uh, but just solving one disease like if you just even solve like all of the cancers, you're still going to die at approximately the same age because you're just going to die of heart disease or of okay. Alzheimer's or something. But if we solve and like we're going to see more impacts as we solve each of these diseases in turn and makes as sense. we make progress on all of this. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so I want to back up a meta level and you may have already covered this before and I may have just missed it. So uh, we, we can skip it if need be. But, you know, what made you choose science and, and working on basic research and studying that and how to make it better? You know, you know what's the motivation there? And um, yeah, like, how'd you get there? Uh, yeah, I think the answer is that I've just been always really interested in science and uh, I've always been interested in like technological progress and uh, in figuring out how uh, how do we get to the future as quickly as we can. And this, yeah, and at, at some point I realized that uh, I, I do want to basically deal with basic science in my life because th this is the thing that's most interesting to me and 
this is the thing that seems really important if we want to get to the future. Uh, and definitely uh, at the same time, I realized that I myself like just constitutionally do not really want to be a scientist. I think that like I'm personally more interested in like talking to people and solving people problems and thinking about the meta level uh, of things rather than at actually like uh, seeking and discovering things uh, and uh this this is why essentially I, I decided that like the the best that i could do then is try try to solve people problems in science and try to figure out how how science works how academia works what, what are the sorts of constraints that people solve the, uh, that uh, what are the types of constraints that scientists face in the course of their research and how can i help and how, how can i uh tr try to make like their work better and how, how can I enable them to work better? That makes sense. Uh, have you read Scientific Freedom by Don Braben by any chance? Uh, I'm aware of the book and I started reading it, but I think at some point I get a little bit bored and I start reading something else and I never get back to it. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. No, that's a, that's a great filter. You know, you should, should move on whenever you get bored with the book. That's my, my thesis. Um, yeah. So we had Don on the show. Uh, do you, you know, the broad thesis. So he ran a venture research program at BP and he had this idea, we're just going to give people money. I'm going to select them personally, essentially no strings attached. You could renew it every three years up to nine years. And they got quite a few impressive results out of it. Do you think that solves some of the coordination problems and people problems, incentive problems you've seen? Um, and then the second question, which we can get to in a little bit, is is what are those biggest coordination problems, people problems, incentive problems that you see in science? Right. I think that the way uh, Breben organized his program is it's difficult to call it good or bad per se. I think it's a very high variance way of organizing things. Right. Like it, it depends a lot on who, who the person is, who, who grants the money is. Uh, Definitely. And if his taste or if Breben's taste was good, if the person's, the person who awards this grant's taste is good, then I think there is very good potential for such a program to fund the things that counterfactually would not have been funded and that end up being very interesting and very impactful. Uh, at the same time, if their test is not taste is not very good, then it's very easy to just like give a bunch of money and have no impact at all. Uh, and I'm unfortunately not very familiar with the impact of with any of the, yeah I'm, I'm not actually familiar with any of the grants that uh, venture research ended up making from what I hear over like like there's a lot of conversation around the book and from what I hear they did end up uh, being really successful which makes me think that like he, he did indeed manage to find some very interesting things to fund uh, and uh, like the the intuition of instead of 
creating a committee and averaging out the votes and funding whatever got the highest average rating instead just getting one person who hopefully has good taste in what to fund and letting them to fund scientists and assuming that scientists also have good taste and ideas and just let them pursue them uh, intuitively the, this uh, way of funding things appeals me to me a lot definitely yeah it's a uh, you know don you know, he's one in a million. I, I don't know how well it replicates. Uh, I'll send you his email as well. I'd highly recommend you reach out to him. He's, he's 85. He's still sharp as a whip. Um, he's a really nice guy, but, uh, uh, yeah, it, it, it's quite interesting to me. Um, you, how do you think the current funding mechanisms are bad? Uh, do they work okay uh you know is that an area where you really think we could make progress you know that's don's big thing right it's like you know there's just not enough you know small amounts of money running around where you know alexi you can go and just research whatever you're passionate about follow it wherever it leads you that's really difficult to get nowadays it's it seems from don's um book do you think that is is a big problem do you think and do you think the current funding structure is is fairly insidious or not I think that the problems he describes are definitely real. It's, I think there is like, again, very, very large variance in how much they're actually manifested between different institutions and different labs. There are places like, most famously, I think like George Church's lab, where George Church at this point is so well-funded and everyone knows that like whatever is going on in his lab, like like you you probably shouldn't mess with it because like the the output is just insane. And he essentially has the ability to work, or his students and his postdocs have the ability to work on whatever seems most interesting and just like get like money out of like the common pool of funding for the lab and just like go and do whatever seems most impactful at any point in time. And there are labs that can do that. Uh, labs that have like a bunch of grants or have both an AH funding and funding from HHMI, for example, where it is indeed possible to do these uh, short-term experiments without much friction and follow up on them. Uh, seamlessly and then like collect some data for them and then apply for the NH grant uh, like post uh, post hoc like explaining what you're like like planning to do in uh, in, in, in square in, uh, in square quotes uh, but the at the same time, I do think this is a very real pro problem for a lot, for most of the labs. For most of the labs, like you do have a grant from the government, which you have to deliver to. And if it no longer seems that like the stated purpose of the grant makes the most sense, like you can again sort of, scientists have the ability to like, again, divert their funding a little bit or to like work on things that seem to make the most sense rather than the things that they 
that are stated in the grant application, but this ability is limited. And it, like the, and it, the cycles of getting new grants for new things are indeed very small. And I would guess that it is indeed the, true that often people are often limited by this and science is indeed slowed down quite a lot by the fact that the funding is not more flexible. Mm. And yeah, my overall impression is that like we do get a ton of progress. We do get a lot of basic discoveries uh, in the life sciences, but like the reason for that is not really that the system works that well. The reason for that is that we're spending dozens of billions of dollars a year. Like the NHS funding is, I think, $40 billion a year at this point. And there are a ton of other organizations that fund life sciences. And when you put that amount of money in the system where you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people researching things, like the, the number increasing over time, then like, you're bound to, and like when the people are really smart, you're bound to get something, even if the system works really poorly. And it's like very difficult to create credible counterfactual estimates of like just how much progress we would see if like we implemented like Brev, more of Brevin's proposals. Uh, my guess is that we wouldn't see more progress and uh, we, we could indeed do much better. Uh, but uh, I think any such estimates would be pretty speculative. Really difficult to come up with. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I, that's really interesting that you said, you know, maybe one of the reasons we haven't suffered so much is we've just thrown more and more money at the problem. So if you just shove more and more money, uh, I, I say this a lot about uh, in, in terms of US defense spending, if the pot is growing and the, the amount we spend is growing every year. And, you know, you can get new programs in and you can be innovative, but if it's shrinking, you can't because it's captured by all the big defense contractors, you know, the Lockheed's and the Booz Allen's will come in and take it and small companies can't get in. And I wonder if something similar happens with science, where as long as that funding pool is growing, you, you can split things off and do new and interesting things. But if it's stagnant or stable, you can't. Or shrinking. You can't. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, the, that sounds about right. Uh, where if, if funding stagnates, then like people who or companies or labs that fight for funding, like they, they fight much more viciously. And the, the companies or like the entities that are more established probably do get the upper hand more often in this zero sum games uh, than new entrants. And it's, it's easier to be a new entrant when the amount of funding is increasing. And like, therefore it, it, entities feel like they're playing a positive sum game or they don't immediately have the ability to just like they're not already allocated the like uh, they have not been previously allocated the funding that is is now available uh, but yeah again it's very difficult to make 
uh, it's very difficult to make any sort of quantitative estimates regarding that, I think. Well, one of the problems with like increasing funding is that on one hand, it, it, it does allow new entrants. On the other hand, it can only it can also just like continue masking the increasing amount of right. systematic problems. Like maybe there's like old government contractors. If you like, if the funding stagnates, then they're forced to do things with the same. Like they can't just like continue hiring people who do not contribute and continue just like increasing bureaucracy like on and on. But if the funding is always increasing, then there is like, and if they get 5% more funding per year, then uh, they can continue just like balloon the, their budgets uh, by that amount and, and not really face the pressure of uh, like, of having to optimize. I think this is like, actually might, might describe what happened to the NIH uh, to, to some extent. Uh, over the last few decades, Be, like the funding, the NH budget actually, if I remember correctly, like literally doubled over a few years uh, oh, wow. of Bill Clinton's presidency, uh, like because there was re really big push to increase science funding, uh, and uh, it, uh, and there there is an argument. Uh, which I, I'm not sure how much exactly I buy it, but there is an argument that it, this resulted like when the NH should have just been reformed and thought through like, and, and science funding should have been thought through first principles, the, like this doubling of funding of NH like masked a lot of the systematic problems and enabled uh, people to just like, Start uh, start spending a, a lot more and start hiring more people, and therefore, like even though the amount of systematic problems was increasing, like the amount of science was increasing even faster because the funding was increasing so much faster, and because of this, we ended up again creating more science, but in even more uh, sort of suboptimal and troubled environments. Uh, and I think there is something to say about like stagnating funding or general like dif difficult times when you're sort, uh, sort of forced to optimize. And I don't know, I, I, I have this sort of the global intuition that like systems without much of external competition just tend to like grow as inefficient as they can possibly grow over time and like in, in, in times of peace, the officer corps like balloons and gets uh, taken over by like career bureaucrats who are just like really good at progressing at uh, progressing in bureaucracies. But like the moment the war starts, like oh, they all get like essentially, well, not kicked out, but like it, it very quickly becomes clear who is actually competent and who is not. And people who are actually competent do, do get the power pretty quickly. Uh, and the, the system does get optimized quickly. And in, in the presence of like, and the same, the same happens in like 
system when there is an open market and open competition, but the NIH, for example, like faces no threats to its existence uh, and no external competition. And, uh, and with ever, yeah, and I would guess that it is becoming more and more inefficient and uh, more and more bureaucratic over time, simply because like th this is what naturally happens to government bureaucracies. Right. Yeah. The NIH, it can't die. And so it's, it, you know, there's no, co there's no competitive pressure, you know, what, so what pass forward do you see, right? Do you see anything? I, we, we had this big existential threat and this big existential health threat, and it didn't seem to get many of the bureaucracies, at least in the here, here in the U S off their tails and doing things. You know, there's a case where the CDC was letting COVID, you know, positive people directly into Atlanta airport early on. You know, it's the busiest airport in the world. It is spread it. You know, it's just on and on and on. You can go through case by case by case where there's complete failure. You know, what, what do you see as a path forward? Is there a path forward? Right. So the, yeah, it, it is, it, you're, you're making a very good point, I think, <laughs> which is that the, the, what we observe is that even in times like the the existing bureaucracies have grown so inefficient and like become so so bureaucratized that even in times of like really big like public health crisis they can't really grow out and they can't uh, like out, out of their shell and they can't really like start acting decisively they're like just too impenetrable to that and well may, may, maybe it, it's the case that like or well i don't know what we what we would see if covid had like 10 percent mortality oh, rather than uh, 0.1 to 1%. Uh, maybe the situation would have been different. Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, uh, on the other hand, maybe not. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, the, 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 best for, the best forward that I see is that in, instead of trying to improve on the existing bureaucracies and, and trying to make them more efficient, like we, we probably can, uh, but uh, to some extent, but even like even the head, the even the head of the NIH, I'm not sure how, how much leverage they actually have and how much they like they could try to make things better, but like the the amount of just like political capital that one need to to really change how such a big bureaucracy works uh, might just not be accessible for quite a long time. And yeah, well, on the other hand, I don't really have a super well developed intuition about that. I think like we haven't really seen like someone who like really dislikes how the NIH works, try to like 
go in and actually change it. It, it might be the case that like if we do get such a person that we, they would actually succeed. But I don't think there have been any major changes in how the NH, for example, op operates in like many decades. And the, the strategy that I eventually decided makes the most more makes the most sense is actually to try to build to just build new systems that would exist in parallel to the existing funding structures so in the same way that like uh, uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute which is one of the biggest private funders of basic life sciences like they did not go and try to improve how the NH gives grants they were like uh, okay there seems to be not enough a uh, specific type of the NH funding. So we're just going to create a program that would uh, that would do such funding. And that would give like, uh, for example, fully unrestricted funding uh, to people who we know are really, really good to allow them to just continue working on things that are really interesting without uh, without any ties or and, and without ha having to tell us what exactly they're working on at every step of the process. And I think that this, this idea, yeah, and, and like there, there are a ton of philanthropic organizations that do this, right? But my impression is that they're all, they're like most of them are actually like fairly conservative because they they still depend on like the existing systems and the existing universities and the NIH to essentially pre-filter people. Like if you're only funding, like as HHMI does, Harvard Hughes Medical Institute, if you only give these big grants to people who are really good, like you're filtering out all of the people who did not become really good in the existing system, who did not have the ability to get the NIH funding to get where they are. And in this way, you're naturally very constrained in who you end up funding. And the same is true, I think, for even more true for almost all of other philanthropic organizations. So, so they do end up more conservative than one would naively think. I think, well, when I, when I was just starting out to think about this, I was like, well, if the NH is so conservative, then there must be like other uh, funders, uh, like there must be like billionaires who realized that the NH is so conservative and created foundations to like uh, try, to, try, try to do, try to fund projects and people in a different way. And this is the case, but they do end up like still being less conservative, but still uh, pretty conservative and have these filters imposed by, by the system. Um, and at the same time, it seems to me that they're basically not ambitious enough. Like the HHMI, again, it, it, it does have these really interesting programs but they, I don't think they are thinking in terms of systems that much. And it, they have, they even have an independent research institute, HHMI Janilia, and uh, which was, which they spent like a few billion dollars on 
by this point, I think I, I, I'm not sure about the exact numbers, but it does seem that like they created the structure with quite different culture and quite different way of doing science. But because my impression, they haven't really been thinking about this at a more at a higher, more systematic level. They like it ended up being more cons much more conservative and much more absorbed in the existing academic system. And instead of affecting the academic system, it ended up being affected by, by academic system uh, quite a lot. And my thinking is that we should, the thing that I want to try to do is actually build up these new systems of those doing science and not just give like more unrestricted funding to people in academia, but try to actually enable people to work on basic science outside of academia and outside of the pressures of uh, academia and like, not thinking like, because even if you like just start one independent institute and you uh, allow people to work on something really interesting in the institute, the process that's going to go through like the back of their mind is, okay, I can work on something really interesting, but then I will probably have to seek a job in academia in a few years anyway. So like, they, they, I can't really just work on whatever. I still have to moderate myself and uh, work on things that, well, might be, I might not have been able to work in academia per se, but will, that will still be interesting to academia and that will result in these top tier papers that will allow me to get a job once like this independent research institute thing runs out or until when they decide to kick me out especially if you hire out of academia because people like uh, see their future tied with academia. And it seems to me that nobody has really been able to solve this problem. And like, I, I really want to try to attack it. I'm like really curious, I really want to try to build out a system where people over the long term would actually not be concerned with trying to impress, like people who do basic science, would stop trying to impress academia and would stop trying to like only do the things that they expect to be able to be published in top tier journals, which is really, really hard, uh, but which I think is more promising in the long term than just uh, doing these like ad hoc problems that don't result in systematic change. Definitely. I, I think you're on the money that exit is probably probably the correct strategy. What, where do you find people who, who fit that mold? You know, is it young people? Do you just go look for young people that can are impressionable? They haven't gotten polluted, so to speak, by current academia. I mean, what does that look like? Have you thought about that at all? Yeah. Uh, well, it, it is indeed the case that it's like, easier to get young people to think in, in this way <laughs> in ways, right? because yeah they they haven't spent last 20 years of their life just like trying to impress the nih uh, uh, and so, so my current thinking is that 
so like I'm still very early in, in my process. I haven't like uh, like to to do such systematic change. You you need like you do need to be able to make long-term commitments to people and to actually like demonstrate to them that they can stop thinking about academia. Yeah. And I'm uh, at this point still like, uh, yeah, basically in the very early stages, I'm like, I think about doing this in the long term, hopefully like over the coming like years and decades, uh, try to do that. But at this point, I want to start like with very small programs that will end up in people hopefully working on things that they counterfactually wouldn't have worked on, but with people probably in substantial part of them going back to academia or trying to make a career in academia. Uh, and however, if we want to uh, have someone work on basic science and like outside of academia. Uh, my current best guess is that, uh, or I I'm trying to just like essentially look for people who first of all, like want to do basic science and like really like basic science uh, and want to become a scientist. But at the same time, like are so dissatisfied with the way academia currently works that they don't want to go into existing academia. And so if uh, I manage to provide them with resources and with funding and with support to continue to do basic science, they're not going to try to impress academia simply because they like really don't want to even go into that system that like can't, that, and that without my funding, they're just going to buy a sec, become software engineers or something. And uh, if, so for example, I'm thinking that, for example, if I can start a one year long fellowship program, for example, then instead of, then the people I would try to target especially are the people who want to drop out of academia. Uh, and who have really interesting ideas and who want to become scientists, but they, instead of using that year long fellowship to just like rack up a bunch of uh, publications or projects that will help them to become a professor, they would actually work on things that are most interesting because otherwise they, yeah, they, they just like drop out completely. That makes sense. I really and like then, it. And then, yeah, and then like you can start with like making longer term commitments to people and to uh, have people think again, think less about trying to impress academia who are a bit more traditional. And then like as the scale of these programs increases and as time commitments increase, uh, I think it's going to become, well, provided that I manage, of course, to, to increase them, uh, it, it should become easier to uh, in, enable people to like think, think about these things in, in a different way. That makes sense. I, I love that. I love that. Um, I've, if we got a few more minutes, I want to hit you with, with a few overrated or underrated. This is pretty quick. Do you know what this is? I'm assuming uh, yeah. you listen to Tal. Yeah, perfect. Uh, and so just give me a sentence why and, you know, operated or underrated or correctly rated. 
Um, Alexei Navalny, I know that's completely out of left field. Overrated or underrated? I think he's correctly rated. Uh, I, well, yes, like I'm originally from Russia and Russian politics is very interesting. Uh, yes. And he's, uh, and Navalny, I think, I'm not sure how much I would want him to like become the president in a competitive democracy. Uh, but at the same time, it, it does seem that he is working really hard to bring Russia closer to a competitive democracy. And uh, in this regard, he is doing a really important job. Uh, and uh, because of this, I think that uh, everyone recognizes that, uh, basically, uh, uh, yeah, and, and because of this, I think that there are a lot of people in Russia who Yeah, I, I don't really have a point uh, there. I, I should gotcha. probably cut like with the, a lot of people in Russia. But yeah, but I think he, he his level of recognition is a, approximately the level of recognition that I, I would expect him to have as a person who like is important for like this like systemic change. But at the same time, uh, yeah. It's less clear of like how competitive of a candidate would he be for me had right, straight up. Russia had a competitive system already. Makes sense. Um, basic income, overrated, underrated? I suspect that basic income is overrated. Uh, yeah, I, I actually haven't thought about this in a long time uh, but I think my probably primary intuition for why that is is that contributing to the society and like having a job or yeah like basically the not even having a job but contributing to the society and contributing to something larger than yourself is something that's really, really, really important for well-being and really important for happiness. And basic income, if implemented, might allow people to, well, the purpose of basic income is to allow people to like not work on the, the jobs they hate and to like do whatever they love and stuff. And my guess would be that if implemented, what might happen is that a lot of people will just like be not being forced to contribute to society by like having having to have a job and like do something that the society like someone pays you to do. Uh, it, it will be very easy to just like stop doing anything just do nothing at all that con contributes to society and just like start playing video games all day long and uh, at some level like this is 
uh, on some level this is good like because like if we think about like well-being then one aspect of well-being is like just enjoying your day how you spend your time day to day hour by hour and like playing video games hour by hour is more enjoyable than holding a job at the same time in the grander scheme of things i suspect it might lead to people just like having much less meaning in their life even if day to day playing video games is more enjoyable and we it does seem to me that we're sort of uh, you know like meaning crisis already and that basic income it might allow people to like pursue their passions and have more meaning in their life but my guess would be but yeah but i think it's very uncertain what the overall impact will be and i think the advocates of basic income uh, basically don't think about this question enough and they're probably people who are end up like being the loudest advocates of basic income they're sort of like really really unrepresentative and right. they, they i think often fail to think of the larger effects uh, of uh, yeah essentially the policies that they will advocate that they advocate for i think that makes a ton of sense i've got one more here effective altruism overrated underrated Yeah, uh, I, again, I don't think I have a simple answer here. I think it's, I think it's probably overrated within like some very narrow slice right. of the internet. It's probably underrated, like globally. Overall. Uh, overall, yeah, I, I, I do think that, like, thinking about the impact is important, and uh, like thinking about like at, at least at least thinking about the charity that you like donate to <laughs> actually doing something good is important it's important yes and it's expected it is probably the case that globally people just don't think about this enough and like end up doing things that just do not contribute at all that like make their donation feel meaningful but not not doing much and it would be much better if people donated to like charities where the the donation feels both meaningful and actually improves the well-being of people uh at the same time i think some of well, yeah, at the same time, it's sort of difficult to make statements about effective altruism because at this point, it's like it shares this common framework, but like thinking about maximizing Very broad. one's impact. But it, like it has become really diverse in like the problems that effective altruism right. is interested in. And like a lot of them, I, I yeah, I actually interviewed Ben Kuhn uh, oh, about, nice. about NAS him actually a little bit uh, about this and uh, one thing that I, I agree with him on is that basically like some people in the effective altruism community think that like the long term is really important it's really important to think about like the making sure that humanity survives like the next right. million years some people think that 
uh, it's really important to like solve poverty in Africa right now. Some people think that like we should care about the dangers on the scale of several decades. Uh, some people think that it's really important to make sure that animals don't suffer needlessly. And uh, it's and and while the, these people often share like some common moral frameworks, like effective altruism community really likes consequentialism and utilitarianism, which uh, I I do not like. Uh, and but they end up working on things that are not really related to each other, and because of this, and yeah, I think it's difficult. Yeah, I, I personally think more about the long term, and gotcha. uh, and like for for parts of effective altruism that also think about the long term, I think that uh, they're doing a good job. Uh, and because like actually, when when I was younger, it's like actually making the decision. I, at some point, I thought that I should work on poverty in Africa and I should become a development economist uh, and. Uh, try try to figure out how can we do better and how to solve these problems. And I decided that mm, I'm more interested in the long term. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I ended up any, like technically the question. No, I, I, I thought that was great. Yeah, basically, I think some of the intellectual frameworks that effective altruists use are underrated. Some of them are overrated. Uh, globally, uh, the world would probably be better if more people thought about like uh thought harder about how to make good how to do good essentially awesome that's really well yeah, put. but at the same time at the same time like one, one of the problems with like i think the with the way effective altruists think about doing good is they in turn they don't think about they don't think about generating meaning enough and like while like traditional charities really uh, like all about the meaning yeah uh, the uh, effective altruism often just swing wildly to the other side and people end up thinking really hard about the impact and while doing that they end up really really depressed because they completely forget about doing the things that end up like being viscerally meaningful to that and it, it, which i think happens quite often and uh i think they're like sort of becoming better at this uh but yeah, I guess we'll, we'll see. I, I love that. That's a thought that I've had for a while, but haven't been able to put into words. Something about, you know, you just go work at a hedge fund, make half a million a year, and then, you know, shuttle it to against malaria and you're good. You know, and I just don't think that's exactly a recipe for happiness, but it could work, but it does. It's very consequentialist, right? Um, I, I really like that. Um, Alexi, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you? Where would you like uh, people to visit you on your blog, on Twitter? Where? Uh, yeah, well, I, I have my uh, si- my personal site, uh, guze.com. Uh, I have Twitter at Alexi Guze. Uh, I have the site of my uh, new nonprofit that I'm starting uh, at newscience.org. Uh, and... Yeah, you, you can I, well probably the easiest way to find me is to like google me or to go into the show notes that's right click on the links. i'll put a link on there that's yeah, exactly I'm, right yeah yeah I, I mostly use twitter as like my social media of choice awesome well thanks alexi yeah thanks for having me
Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 